The Mystical Underground and Rob McGregor present an audio production of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. Odin. So, the Lord said, go down, Moses, to the Egypt land. Tell him, the pharaohs, to let my people go. Go down, Moses, by Louis Armstrong. 23. All aboard. When the dust and smoke cleared, Magnus Voller stepped through the doorway to the cave. An arm extended out from under the shattered door. Voller stomped across the door, his 220 pounds pressing down on Jones. No response from beneath the door, and his arm didn't even twitch. Goodbye, Jones. You served your purpose. You led the way like a good guide dog. Now you're done. Then he spotted it, several feet away in the rubble, the staff of Moses. He was hoping Jones hadn't found it yet. He wanted it untouched, undamaged. He stepped off the door, bent down to examine it, miraculously, it appeared intact, undamaged by the blast. And why not? It was a power object, one of incredible caliber, and one that he would put to use. It was not just a prize, a museum piece for the Third Reich. It was a weapon. The crack of a 38 caught his attention, then another and another. Reinforcements from the Odin had arrived shortly after the fireballs had erupted from the other doors. He caught O'Malley as she tried to crawl away and secured her. Then he told the new arrivals to take care of the injured men. If they can walk, help them to the Auden. If they can't get up, shoot them here in the temple, he laughed, pointing a finger at the side of his forehead. He kicked Joan's arms, stepping across the door again, and walked into the temple carrying the staff of Moses. The survivors had been taken away. The dead lay in a heap near the man-lion statue. Several of the men waited near, nearby for orders. He ignored the scorched bodies and studied the statue. He recognized it as a version of the supreme Hindu god. Take the statue, it belongs to the Deutschreich now. Then blow up the temple and get back to the Auden. We're leaving. He walked away carrying the staff, taking care that it didn't touch the ground. The statue would make a worthy museum piece, but it hardly compared to the staff. As he stepped outside, he considered seeing if it could destroy the heathen temple by pounding the staff on the ground and ordering it to collapse. But some of his men were still inside. Besides, he'd already ordered them to blow it up with the explosive they'd brought. No sense wasting the power of the artifact, and the deed could be easily accomplished through ordinary means. He looked up at the Zephyr hovering a hundred feet in the air near the palace. O'Malley, he was certain, was already inside and secured. After all, he'd ordered three men to make sure that she made it aboard. They knew they were dead if they failed. 
he would inform her of the death of Indiana Jones, and then she would be his to toy with in any way that pleased him. He entered the palace through the front door and signaled a communications agent that they were leaving. The palace, like the city, appeared empty now, the residents dead or in hiding, waiting for the Sky Dragon with its deadly passengers to leave. He walked beneath the Odin and tightened a rope around his waist. He was immediately pulled up toward the Zeflin. Halfway up, he heard a blast and smiled as the temple collapsed in on itself. Farewell, Jones. No matter what Maggie did, she couldn't escape. The brazen Nazis laughed as she struggled and they pawed her as they tied her to the line from the Zeflin and hauled her up. Unfortunately, Voller knew she was an agent. She was in trouble, facing interrogations, torture. She didn't want to think about what might be in store for her and what might have happened to Indy. As she was lifted into the huge double hull Zeflin, she was dragged across the floor and dumped next to Kingston and his nurse. Both were handcuffed and gagged. The nurse's hands were tied behind her back to her feet. She wasn't moving, and dried blood caked the side of her head. Kingston pushed up on his elbows and tried to say something through the gag. A Nazi stepped up and kicked him in the side, then reached down and dragged Maggie into a small, barren room. He tossed her to the floor, and her head bounced off the wall. The door slammed shut, and she was locked inside. A few minutes later, she raised her head as she felt the craft moving. She closed her eyes, realizing that she might never see India again. She had no idea where the Zeppelin was headed, but she knew there was a good chance she wouldn't survive the trip. The latch clicked, the door opened, and Bowler stepped inside, beaming with arrogance and pride. He gripped the staff in one hand, and she knew it was the staff. Yes, I have it, Maggie. It's mine. I'm sorry to tell you that Jones couldn't join us on our excursion. I'm sure he would have made an interesting guest. What did you do to him? He did it to himself by searching for the staff. Appropriately, he died beneath the rubble of the temple. I'm sure that you're glad to be rid of him. He found the staff before you, and he didn't need to bring along an ar army. That's the pass. The staff is mine. I've won. Now I'm going to put it away. I'll return later, and we can chat. And don't worry, I've ordered my men to keep their hands off you. You are all mine. He laughed as he left. She felt sickened by his mere presence. She couldn't imagine getting any closer to Magnus Fuller. She would kill herself before she allowed the beast to touch her. Indy felt pain, which meant he was alive. His body ached. Something heavy lay on top of him. Darkness surrounded him. He moved his fingers, then his toes. One of his arms was pinned underneath him. The other stretched out to the side. He wriggled his shoulders, then his legs. He was bruised. He'd suffered a minor concussion. But he didn't have any broken bones. He lifted up grimacing as he freed his arm and started to crawl, inching his way forward. He realized that the door to the cave had fallen on top of him in the blast. When he looked out from the cave, he realized how fortunate he, he was to be alive. The temple had collapsed. The door actually had protected him from a beam that 
that fell across it. He worked his way from under the door and crawled over beams and roofing material like a gopher burrowing its way out of a collapsed hole. He felt as if he was rising from the dead and he suspected there were bodies strewn throughout the rubble. He just hoped that Maggie's wasn't one of them. No sign of the staff either. If it were here, it was lost in the rubble, probably destroyed. Gasping for air, he climbed to his feet. First thing he noticed was the enormous Zeppelin gliding low just above the edge of the city. Dark swirling clouds hung over the city. The weather was turning treacherous and any higher and stronger winds would batter the airship. The Zeppelin wouldn't be leaving without Voller and Voller wouldn't be leaving without the staff. Impossible as it seemed, Indy knew he had to make an effort to catch the craft and the line dangling from it. The Zeppelin made a slow turn, preparing to descend the mountain. Indy forgot about his sore limbs and raced madly away from the temple toward the edge of the mountain. The line hung barely six feet off the ground. As long as his legs didn't give out, he had a good chance of catching it and climbing aboard. The Zeppelin made the turn and was moving slowly in his direction at a 45 degree angle. He looked up to see someone on skis wearing a white parka climbing down the line and dropping into the snow. Then another and another skier leaped from the Zeppelin. The first one skied directly towards Indy, who was forced to turn aside to avoid him. Indy maintained his balance and raced ahead. The other two skiers came at him from either side. Indy's only choice was to plow straight ahead. He raised his arms at the last moment and caught both skiers simultaneously under the jaw and knocked them onto their backs. He darted for the dangling line less than 10 yards away now. He took three long steps, leaped, and his fingers grazed the line, then slipped out of his grasp. He dropped face first into the snow, gasping for breath. The Zeppelin continued down the mountainside. Scraps of wood from the temple lay in the snow around Indy. He spotted a rectangular piece of one of the doors, glanced down the mountain toward the retreating craft. Why not? He scooped up the remains of the door, ran down the mountain until his feet slipped out from underneath him. He flopped down onto the door and slid down the mountain in hot pursuit of the Zeppelin. Snow sprayed in his face as he clung to the door. He turned his head, blinking his eyes. The Nazi ski patrol was racing down the mountain after him. One of the Nazis shifted his ski poles to one hand and fired a couple of shots at him as he niftily carved down the mountain, gaining speed and catching up to Indy. He moved closer, aimed. You would die, he shouted. Wait, Indy yelled as he noticed the jagged train ahead. You don't shoot a gun on a snow-covered mountain. The skier hesitated, then hit a Volvo and catapulted through the air, tumbling over and over again. The gun fired twice before the skier vaulted over the lip of the ledge and vanished from sight. Meanwhile, Indy rocketed over the same snow-covered ledge and landed smoothly on the door as he continued down the mountain. One down, two to go, Indy thought. But how was he going to fight off the ski patrol and catch the Zeppelin? The double-hulled airship was staying low to the mountain, but was definitely gaining speed. Suddenly, a deep rumbling shook the mountain and Indy knew his life was in even greater danger this time from a natural force, avalanche. That's why you don't shoot a gun on a mountain in winter, you idiot. He glanced back to see an enormous wall of snow swallow 
the other two skiers as they swept down the mountain. He sailed off another ledge, the door airborne, and saw something dangling. He was under the Zeppelin. Let go now and grab the line. A part of him resisted releasing the door. Another part of him knew it was the only thing to do if he was going to get onto the Zeppelin. He let go and grabbed the mooring line with both hands. He swung back and forth in a wide arc amid a flurry of snow rising from the avalanche. No one could see him, still swinging. He slowly pulled himself upward, hand over hand. But as he swept past the doorway, the snow cleared away and he glimpsed a crowd of armed Nazis. He quickly decided against climbing into a confrontation in which he had little chance of succeeding and a great chance of being thrown out the door. On the next swing forward, Indy grabbed a strut and let go of the line. He started crawling onto the hull. In spite of the great view of the Himalayas, it wasn't exactly a wonderful ride. Besides the danger, Indy was cold and uncomfortable. At least for the moment, no one was chasing him. Just as he settled down, he heard voices. He listened closely and realized he wasn't alone on the hull. He crawled higher and spotted a couple Nazi mechanics taking a break and smoking. One of them spotted him, stood up, a heavy wrench in hand. He was tall, corpulent, and mean-looking. Here we go again, Andy groaned. Twenty-four. No escape. What do you think you're doing? Bishtuvert. Are you crazy? Indy demanded as he approached the two mechanics. Do you not remember the Hindenburg? That was what? Two years ago? It was destroyed by fire. And here you are, smoking. We're not near the fuel, one of the mechanics said, blowing smoke towards Indy. Rashindu, who are you? Are you the American... They looked to find down there, the other mechanic said in broken English. Of course not. He died in the explosion. I am American spy for Reckfuhr SS Himmler. The mechanic with the big wrench tapped it threateningly in his palm. No one told me about you. Of course not. You don't know everything that's going on. You are a mechanic. I bet you don't know where we are going now. Yes, we do. We're going to the Bay of Bengo to rendezvous with Wolfram. So you know something. But you don't know me. You don't want to know me. Now stop smoking. Get back to work. Yes, sir. As he turned away, Indy spotted the hatch the men had used to reach the hull. He hitched his whip, trying to hide it from view of the pair. He walked over to the hatch to make his escape. But as he stepped down, the hulking mechanic took out a walkie-talkie. Indy quickly descended the ladder to a catwalk and hurried away. The mechanics were probably wondering what Himmler's spy was doing on the hull and started to question his story. He paused as he came to a catwalk crossing the hull, uncertain which way to go. He peered over the side, at least 50 feet down, but it was too dimly lit to see anything. He made up his mind started to cross to the other side. Halfway there, he came to a ladder and decided to climb down to another catwalk. He started down, but stopped when he heard voices. A patrol of soldiers appeared at the base of the ladder. One pointed showed it. Halt! Don't think so. Indy turned and retraced his steps, only to see the two mechanics rushing along the upper catwalk towards him. 
The steel ladder shuddered as the soldiers clambered up. Indy loosened his whip, lashed it onto an overhead beam, then kicked off the ladder. He swung forward and met the charging soldiers with the bottom of his boots. The one in the lead lost his balance, fell back, knocking the other soldiers down the steps. He snapped his whip to free it from the beam, but it didn't come loose. Damn it, that's not supposed to happen. On the second try, it slipped off the beam, but the delay cost Indy several valuable seconds. The massive mechanic, still holding the oversized wrench, thundered down the ladder. Indy ducked as the mechanic swatted the wrench at his head. He wrapped his arms around the mechanic's girth and tried to shove him aside, but he might as well have been tackling a giant redwood. The beefy brute didn't budge. He grabbed Indy by the back of the neck, pulling him away, and was about to crack his skull with the wrench when it slipped from his hand, clattering down the metal stairs. He growled and lifted Indy overhead, as if he were a ten-pound sack of potatoes. You are in big trouble, Indy said. Wait until Herr Himmler hears about your bad behavior. You lie, Johns. The whip gave you away. With that, he hurled Indy headfirst over the railing. If Maggie had a way of jumping out of the Zeppelin, she'd probably do it. Her chances of surviving the fall, even if she landed in a snowbank, were slim. But it was better than what awaited her in Bowler's captivity. She heard someone at the door and guessed he was back. She would defend herself, but there was only so much she could do, especially since her hands were still bound behind her back. Bowler entered the room and she glimpsed a couple of guards behind him. He spoke under his breath to the men, then closed the door. He stared at her, looking pensive. Something was on his mind and she expected it was time for an interrogation. When he pulled out a long knife, she was sure of it. He approached her without a word, grabbed her arm, and twisted her around. He sliced through the rope that bound her wrists. She backed to the wall, rubbing her sore wrists, and watching as Voller reached into his pack again. He pulled out a canteen and offered it to her. She took it and drank deeply. Lowering it, she met Voller's gaze. What do you want from me? You'll find out. Do you have time to get better acquainted, my dear? I have some news for you. Some interesting news. When she didn't respond, he continued, Your Dr. Jones somehow escaped the collapsed temple and even managed to forward the Odin. He's quite clever. Suddenly her hopes rose. Where is he? Now Voller smiled. That is another thing I must tell you. He was attempting to reach the passenger quarters from the hull. Then he had an accident. He fell from the ladder inside the hull. My men are retrieving his body now. How do you know he's dead? You were bloody wrong before, Maggie reminded him. He is dead or gravely injured. He went down head first. Are you trying to make me feel bad, Magnus? That devious smile again. Of course not. I just want you to know that Jones made a valiant effort to sh shave you. Uh, or maybe it was the staff he was attempting to salvage. Whatever it was, he failed. Up your arse, Magnus Fuller. His hand curled into a fist, swung toward her. But someone rapped at the door. He let his arm drop, scald, went to the door. Maggie glimpsed a man with a scar across his cheek and carrying a falcon on his shoulder. He and Voller conferred in low voices. Voller snapped an order, and the man hurried off. He turned to Maggie. 
We'll continue our discussion very soon, Agent O'Malley. With that, he strode off. Indy's heart pounded as he was hurled off the catwalk and into the murky abyss. His arm flailed, and he miraculously snagged onto a brace that held the ladder to the catwalk. He swung by one arm until he caught a bar running under the catwalk, then snagged the bar on the opposite side with his other hand. He hung there, holding his breath as the Nazis peered over the side, looking for his body at the base of the dimly lit hall. The burly mechanic said he'd fallen under the ladder and probably had broken his neck. And go find him, a soldier said. Voter will want to see the body right away. As the soldiers departed, Indy moved along the underside of the catwalk, hand over hand. When he reached the connecting catwalk, he turned in the direction the soldiers had gone. His shoulders, head, and his hands burned, but he kept going. He stopped again, listened. He didn't hear any more sounds above, so he pulled himself up onto the catwalk. He hurried forward to the entrance to the passenger quarters, moved inside, then slipped behind a bulkhead as he heard voices coming his way. Fuller and a muscular, scar-faced Nazi with his falcon perched on his shoulder moved past. As soon as they were gone, Indy headed down the corridor, retracing their steps. He stopped by a door, noticed the floor in front of it was splattered with bird shit. A key was in the lock. He turned it, carefully opened the door a few inches, peered inside. Maggie was pressed against the far wall, tense, troubled, her knees under her chin. He quickly stepped inside, closed the door. Her eyes widened. She jumped up, rushed forward. Indy! Not so loud, he whispered, hugging her. They said you were dead. Twice, they told me. She squeezed him as if she still didn't believe he was here. He flashed a grin. Yeah, I'm like a cat that way. I've been left for dead a few times. How are we going to get out of here? Indy would have liked to continue with the hugging, along with some exploratory caressing, but uh, they were, were still in danger. He reluctantly stepped back and hurried over to the door. Hopefully, it'll be easier than the way I got here, but I'm not counting on it. I saw Kingston and his nurse. We need to help them if we can. They looked as if they were hurt. Yeah, and we need to get the staff back. I actually had it in my hands for about a minute. Easy come, easy go. Indy stared at her in disbelief. His entire body ached from his recent aerobatics and hand-to-hand -hand combat to say nothing of the battering his body took in the temple. No, it was definitely not easy. I was bloody kidding, okay? Don't you know freckin' blarney when you hear it? Indy managed to laugh. Your Irish roots are showing, Miss Maggie O'Malley. You mean my freckin' Irish heritage? Enough blather. Let's go. He shook his head, slipped out of the door, and down the hallway, Maggie right behind him. Indy attempted to open the next door, but it was locked. He tried another with the same result. Unlike Maggie's room, there were no keys in these doors. He suspected that Voller had left Maggie's room suddenly after hearing the soldiers hadn't found the, his body. Kingston must be in one of these rooms, but which one and how do we get in? He heard footsteps coming down the corridor, just around the corner. He reached for another door and felt a pain between his eyes. He shrugged it off, opened the door, ushered Maggie inside, then followed. She immediately turned around and bumped into him. Wrong door. He looked past her and into a mess hall, 
where a dozen Nazis were dining. He started to back out when the door opened behind him. A pair of soldiers waited to enter. During Goldman will come in. Come in, welcome, Andy said, sweeping a hand in a welcoming gesture. He took Maggie's arm and walked in as if they ran the place. Suddenly, they were in the center of the mess hall, surrounded by puzzled Nazis. Heads turned, voices murmured. A few of the men stood up, started moving toward them. Andy didn't think they'd fire any guns inside the Zeppelin, but that didn't mean they were out of trouble. Indy, what are we going to do, Maggie whispered. To the kitchen, my dear. We'll see what's cooking. He took her by the arm and led her toward the swinging doors. He glanced back, expecting the Nazis to follow. To his surprise, they stopped. Guess they're not allowed in the kitchen, he said with a shrug. Few kitchen workers in white apparel scurried about, focusing on their work, ignoring him and Maggie. He spotted a door at the rear of the kitchen and headed towards it, moving past stoves with boiling pots of soup and goulash and a counter covered with trays of food. He grabbed a handful of turkey, stuffed it in his mouth and a steak. Suddenly a huge jelly-bellied cook with a chef hat, apron, and a menacing cleaver stepped around the end of the counter. Legs spread, cleaver raised. He shouted in German and he didn't need a German-English dictionary to translate. Out of my kitchen before I kill you. Sorry, we'll take the back door. Stop right now. Who are you? Just a couple of tourists hitching a ride. No, you are the thief. Yeah, the one who steals the Bible stories. What? The crazed chef lunged at them with a cleaver. Indy stepped back just in time, the blade zipping under his chin. He punched him in the gut, and his fists sank into layers of fat. Maggie darted around him as the chef folded forward. She grabbed his ankles from behind and he dro dropped the blubbery cook on his fat face. Good job, Indy said, then looked back as soldiers poured into the kitchen. He darted to the stove and dumped a huge kettle of goulash. They dashed out of the rear door as soldiers stumbled and slid on the sl slick kitchen floor. They found themselves in a hangar where four biplanes were suspended by cable 10 feet in the air. Indy quickly rolled a heavy tool cart in front of the door and locked its wheels. He grabbed a ladder and dragged it over to the closest plane. Are we going to fly away, Miggy asked? We'll see. They mounted the ladder and settled into the cockpit. Indy pushed the ladder away, but the soldiers were already shoving their way into the hangar. They ducked down, but it didn't take long before the Nazis figured out where they were hiding. The plane started to swing as it was slowly lowered to the floor. Indy saw the keys in the ignition and turned it on. The engines revved up as the plane touched down. He took the controls and started taxiing in a tight circle with the plane still connected to the cables. The soldiers dodged around the hangar, attempting to mount the plane and avoid the propeller. The bloody bastards are closing in on us, Indy, Maggie called. I see that. Let's go. They climbed out of the open cockpit and along a wing. They leaped off. Just as the plane came to a momentary stop, held in place by the twisted cable, Indy grabbed a lever on the wall, impulsively pulled on it, and the floor beneath the plane opened up. Oh, that's what it does. At the same time, the plane reversed directions as the cable unwound. The soldiers, charging after Indy and Maggie, pulled up short and scattered as a propeller and rotating wing came their way and several plummeted through the open floor. Whoops, guess they didn't see that coming. 
Indian Maggie edged along the opening in the floor, ducking low to avoid the wing as it spun their way, and he pointed to another door and they bolted for it and into the hall. They ran along the catwalk, Maggie in the lead now. The catwalk cut straight across the hall, connecting to a second hall. None of the surviving soldiers immediately gave chase. They were probably too preoccupied with the mayhem and the anger. Maggie saw it out of the corner of her eye, something sleek and fast and aiming directly at her head. She dropped to the catwalk and Indy toppled over her. Did you see that? She asked as Indy helped her to her feet. See what? There. She ducked and this time recognized it as a fal falcon, one with a mean disposition. Yeah, a Nazi bird, Indy said, stepping ahead of her. Let's get going. Keep your head down. Just as they reached a connecting catwalk, a towering figure stepped out blocking their path. The hawk rested on his shoulder. End of the road, or in this case, catwalk, for you two, the man said in accented English. Maggie recognized the tall, dark-haired Nazi as a German businessman living in London who'd been a double agent working for both the SS and British intelligence. He provided the British government with valuable information on Hitler's plans, but had disappeared last year after becoming a suspect in the murder of two British agents from Maggie's Section D. Hello, Faust, Maggie said, calling him by his code name. We meet again, my dear. Glad you two know each other, Indy said. I hope we're on the same side. Don't count on it, Maggie said. Now I remember you trained falcons to attack people. This one is so well trained that it could rip your eyes out with the snap of my fingers. Indy reached for his whip, but the hawk dived in its beak, slashed the back of his hand. He pulled it away, grabbed it with the other hand. The bird circled around, dove again, knocking off Indy's fedora. As Indy reached down for it, Faust kicked him in the head. At the last instant, Indy jerked his head and the blow glanced off his cheek. He grabbed Faust's foot, pulling it up as Maggie kicked out his other leg and he dropped to the catwalk. Faust sat up, snapped his fingers, and Indy slammed a fist into his face. The bird swept down, striking Maggie in the shoulder, knocking her over. Faust on his feet again exchanged slugs with Indy. Meanwhile, the bird swooped down, then hovered, its claws raking Indy's neck. Maggie leaped up and swatted the bird away. Indy was taking enough of a pummeling without the help of the goddamn bird, she thought. The two men were on their knees, pounding each other. Maggie caught sight of the bird diving right for Indy again. Duck, she shouted. Indy jerked his head to one side and the falcon slammed past his ear and struck Faust in the forehead. Man and bird collapsed. Indy staggered to his feet. Maggie moved closer. The bird's neck had snapped. Faust's eyes stared blankly ahead. He wasn't breathing. They're both dead, she said. I think I lost another life myself. Maggie groaned at the sound of feet pounding the catwalk. Coming their way, it wasn't over yet. Twenty-five. God's Wrath. Indy let out a sigh as he recognized Kingston's nurse, Bethany, rushing towards them. I'm so, so glad I found you, she said, catching her breath. What happened? Maggie asked. I got away. How? Indy was immediately suspicious. She didn't seem the least bit surprised that he was aboard the Zeflin. He also remembered that she'd said she left the city from time to time. I got friendly with the guard. He told me what was going on, that you were here that you'd gotten Maggie free, that Voller was fuming. 
He was impressed that I spoke German. My grandmother, who raised me, was from Munich. So he let you go? She glanced at Maggie with a wicked look, as if they shared something in common. Not exactly. I got him into a compromising position, you might say. Then I cold-cocked him, took his keys, and left. Indy nodded. I get it. You sweet-talked him into idiocy. Where's Kingston? Where's the staff? I was told he was with Voller on the bridge, and Voller has the staff with him. Then let's go. Follow me, Bethany said. I think I know the way. I was held in a room close to it. Indy hesitated, looked to Maggie, who nodded. You got a problem following the lady? Maybe, he thought. You first. I'll cover the rear. Maggie left. Yeah, I bet. He had no doubt that Kingston's nurse could lead them to the bridge, but he suspected that Voller was luring them there. He was tired of chasing Indy and decided to draw him into a trap using Kingston and the staff as bait. Bethany might not be working with Voller, but she might be carrying out his will, whether she knew it or not. After all, the story about the babbling guard being overpowered sounded suspicious. They retraced their steps along the catwalk, but avoided the door to the hangar. Bethany led them along another catwalk, then up a ladder to a door that opened to a wide corridor. At the end of it, elevated and behind glass, was the bridge. Indy tensed as they walked out into the corridor. It was all too easy, he thought. His instinct told him to back away, that this wouldn't go well. Then again, eventually, he would have to confront Voller, and they were playing on his field. Maggie turned to him. What are we going to do? Indy felt a Zeflin rocking slightly and remembered the storm. Play it by ear, I guess. Suddenly a door swung open on either side of the corridor and armed Nazis poured out weapons aimed at them. Bethany walked over to a handsome young soldier who stood next to him. Sorry, but they were going to kill us, Charles and me. They offered a sanctuary if I brought you in. I sort of figured something like that, Indy said. You bleeding traitor. How could you, Artis Moore? Yeah, I know who you are. Maggie surged towards the nurse, but Indy caught her arm as the soldiers tensed. The nurse backed away. We didn't have much choice, Maggie. But she wasn't finished with Bethany. Did you tell them about the city and the staff? Is that how they found it? No, I promise you I didn't. I wouldn't do that to Charos. There are lots of Nazis in Nepal they must have found out from people in the mountains. That's partially true. Bowler stood at the door to the bridge, towering over them, his voice booming. The city was rumored for years among the mountain people, but we only verified the location after you escaped from the Sultan's palace. The museum director wouldn't tell us where to find the staff, but his mistress found the exact location in a note from Kingston hidden in a novel, Lost Horizon. I've read it. The novel, that is, Indy deadpanned. Bowler walked up to Indy. All along, I've known that I've been on the righteous path and that I would take possession of the staff. I wouldn't call exactly righteous, Magnus, Indy responded. Bowler gave him a bemused look. I'm enjoying this immensely. I'll keep you around for a while, Jones, just for amusement. Oh, by the way, Jones, the mistress was the same woman who gave you the dragon rug. Touché. Another traitor, Indy grumbled. He snapped his fingers, pointed. 
Bruno. Sure, I guess. How we deal with traitors? Do we give them sanctuary? The soldier who had guarded Bethany pressed his revolver to her temple. What are you doing, Bethany yelled. I brought him here for you. You promised us. Too bad, Buller interrupted, then nodded to the soldier who pulled the trigger. Maggie gasped as blood splattered everywhere and the nurse toppled to the side, half her head blown away. Now, bring our guest to the bridge. Dr. Kingston must be getting lonely. Laura felt elated by events as he stepped back into the expansive bridge where Kingston was tied to a chair. He patted his old professor on the shoulder. I'm sorry that your nurse won't be able to join us, Charles. She had an accident. You killed her after you promised to spare her. I know. I had more respect for her than she was fighting in the tunnel. She gave up and turned against her friend to save herself. I think she liked young Bruno, too. He turned away from Kingston as the captives were marched onto the bridge. After his initial consternation, he actually was pleased now that Jones had somehow survived and boarded the Odin. He presented a challenge, and Muller wanted the American to understand that the Nazis were the true Aryans, the pure-blooded people who would rule the world. The capture of the Staff of Moses just confirmed it. He smiled pleasantly at O'Malley, pleased that she looked so stunned after witnessing the nurse's demise. She would present no problem. She knew she might face the same fate at any moment. He pointed to two chairs next to Kingston. After they were ushered to the seats, Muller dismissed all but two of the soldiers. The others would be standing nearby. He placed a hand on the console to steady himself as he felt the Odin rocking again. The pilot had expressed growing anxiety about the storm, but that wasn't Muller's concern now. Jones, let me offer you a belated welcome to the Odin, the only double-hulled Zeppelin in the world. The fact that the staff was hidden in Nepal points to the inevitable factor of racial superiority of the Aryan race, the heritage of the German people. You're a madman, just like your boss Himmler and his boss. Germans are Germanic and originated in Northern Europe. That's a lie, Jones. He reached into a hidden storage space in the wall and took out the staff. He held it up like a king with scepter. Then he waved it threateningly in front of Indy's nose. The Aryans came into existence after divine thunderbolt shattered the ice that locked the world and imprisoned the race. It's all part of our ancestral heritage. Bouldersh, Kingston shouted. Now I know I made the right decision to banish you. The staff in your hands is a sacrilege. Voller fumed at the old man's insolence and abruptly smacked Kingston across the back of his neck with the staff. Simultaneously, an enormous crack of thunder rattled the Odin. The winds picked up and the Zeppelin swayed precariously from side to side. Voller stumbled and fell, rolling across the bridge. As soon as he saw the staff in Voller's hand, Indy knew something was about to happen. Night was falling and the storm was building. Dark clouds flashed ominously. The wind howled and the Zeppelin creaked and groaned like an old wooden ship in high seas. Large raindrops splattered the glass. The moment Muller struck Kingston with the staff, the banshee wind wailed and the huge craft rocked. The bridge fell into darkness that tilted precariously and everyone stumbled or fell. Indy toppled out of the chair, 
rolled down the angled floor, then back again as the bridge pitched in the other direction. God's wrath and God. For the next half hour, the storm continued unabated, tossing everyone on the bridge back and forth until they found something to cling onto. When the calm finally returned, Eddie lifted his head as the lights flickered back on. He spotted Voler on the floor, the staff laying nearby. Indy crawled towards it, but Voler grabbed it and stood up. The grumbling guards recovered and dragged Indy, Maggie, and Kingston back towards their chairs. And to everyone's surprise, the full force of the storm hit with cyclonic power and the old tip steeply on its side. Indy grabbed onto a post, his legs dangling as bodies rolled past him amid shouts and screams. The tempest didn't just batter the Zeppelin, it waged war against it, and the airship plunged and rose and tilted. Indy, meanwhile, lashed himself to the post with his whip in the faint hope that the airship would ride out the storm. It continued on throughout the night. Gradually, the shouts died away and the wind hushed to a whisper, accompanied by an occasional groan from one of the fallen. When it was over and the gray dawn filtered through the windows, Indy realized the Odin would survive and that he'd fared better than several of the others on the bridge. Two of the guards were dead or knocked out. The others had broken bones or were unable to get up. Warm air blew in through the broken windows, revealing that the storm not only had battered the airship, but had hurled it hundreds of miles to the south. While Indy freed himself from the whip, Voller crawled toward a corner strewn with debris. He reached for the staff, but collapsed on his face. Indy walked over and scooped it up. He helped Maggie to her feet, then went over to Kingston. I'm okay, Indy. Don't worry about me. Kingston stood, leaning on a chair that Indy had picked up. He showed no interest in sitting down. I'm always sitting. You've got the staff. Congratulations. But now, what are we going to do? Before Indy could respond, Voller stumbled to his feet, tottering forward like a drunk. He won't have it for long. He whipped out a gun, leveled at Indy, and fired. Maggie screamed as blood sprayed, and Indy, along with Kingston, collapsed to the floor. She rushed forward, crouched over the two men. No, no. She couldn't tell what happened. Were they both shot? Blood gushed from Kingston's chest. Indy slid out from under him, rolled onto his hands and knees, lunged and tackled Voller. They tumbled over a couple of times, one way, then back the other, struggling for the gun. Indy twisted Voller's wrist and slammed the back of Voller's hand against the floor. The gun slid away right towards Maggie. She grabbed it and on her knees, she aimed at Voller. Don't move or I'll blow your bloody head off, you bastard. Voller raised his arms. Don't shoot. You can't control the Odin without my help. We'll work something out. Are you okay? Maggie asked Cindy as he stood up. Kingston took the bullet. He jumped in front of me. Too bad about that, Voller said. You were my target. Now you're my target, Maggie hollered. Me, Voller shouted. You shoot me and you are as good as dead. You will never get off the Odin with the staff. What's your plans, Magnus? Indy asked. I'll land anywhere you want, within reason, and let you go. You can take the staff with you. Maggie didn't believe him. His voice sounded false, stilted. He was just stalling. Suddenly, soldiers stormed the bridge, weapons drawn. Drop the gun, Maggie, Voller said. You don't have a chance. She knew he was right. 
She felt like pumping a couple of bullets into him first, but she knew his men would retaliate. She knew he would die in a blaze of gunfire. I think we're cornered, and he said, drop the gun. And you give me the staff, Buller ordered triumphantly. As Maggie tossed the gun down, Indy, staff in hand, grabbed her by the arm, jerked her backwards. She turned, felt the warm breeze through a broken window, then realized what Indy was doing. It was crazy, but there was no other choice. Ready, he hollered, holding her hand. Get set, she yelled back. Go, he yelled, and they ran and hurled themselves through the broken window, out into the warm breeze and into the void, leaving the astonished Nazis behind. Blue sky and swirling clouds spun around them. Water rushed up at them, choppy waves, a sea that went on forever. Then it swallowed them, buried them, and Maggie blacked out. Twenty-six, parting ways. Indy lifted up on his forearms and looked around in astonishment. He remembered jumping, and he'd known it was the right thing to do. But once out the window, he fell into a dream. He had no recollection of the plunge or the crash. Next to him, Maggie was sitting up, rubbing her face. The staff lay between them and looked undamaged. He didn't know how much time had passed or where they were. But as he focused on his surroundings, he knew he was at the bottom of an ocean. But there was no water. He saw seagrass with fish of all sizes flopping on it. A huge turtle crawled away from a manta ray that flapped its water wings and snapped its barbed tail. He smelled the ocean, but didn't see it. Indy? Yeah, I know. It's incredible. The ocean without the ocean. In the distance, shimmering mountains rose majestically towards the sky. Then he realized the mountains were actually enormous cliffs of water, parted and held back by the staff. He picked it up as he stood and turned slowly, taking all of it in, astonished at everything he saw. He heard a humming that grew progressively louder and finally dropped his head back and peered upward. I guess we haven't been down here too long. The Odin hovered above them. I don't remember anything from the time we jumped, Maggie said. Join the club. Maybe we'll figure it out later. Right now, it looks like we're getting some company. Less than a quarter of a mile away, the Odin lowered to the seabed. A bay opened and military ground vehicles rolled out. Indy shook his head. Lohler doesn't give up easily. Kitten creds, which looked like a cross between a motorcycle and a tank, cut through the seabed, crunching coral, rolling over mounds of debris and sea creatures heading right at them. This way hurry, Indy pointed at what appeared to be a huge black rock. As they ran closer to it, he realized it was a beached whale, weighing at least 20 tons. They raced to its far side, ducked down inside its dorsal fin, hiding from view. The creature was still alive, breathing. If it rolled to the side, they'd be crushed. I don't like it here, but I suppose it's better than its gullet, Maggie said. Hey, let's not mix our Bible stories, Indy replied as a couple of the vehicles rolled past them. One of the roofless, one-seated vehicles with tank treads stopped near the mouth of the whale, and the driver claimed, climbed down and fired several shots. The whale shuddered, its blubber shivering against them, pressing them into the sand and stone and broken coral. The bloody bastards think we're playing Jonah, Maggie said. Another one of the vehicles rolled slowly along the side of the dying whale. The driver was examining the whale, but the fin blocked his view of their position. 
and he worked his way out from underneath the blubber and stood up, in an urge to run up to the driver, knock him off the kettlebell with the staff, then decided it was a bad idea. The vehicle stopped near the tail, and the driver lit a cigarette. Now was his chance, and he thought. He unclipped his whip and took a couple of quick steps forward and hurled it with full force. It wrapped around the driver's shoulders, and he jerked hard, and the driver fell off the vehicle, the cigarette flying from his mouth. No smoking, and he shouted and rushed forward, the staff raised. At the last moment, he shifted the staff to his left hand and slammed his fist, right fist in the Nazi's face, knocking him out before he had a chance to call for help. He retrieved his whip, jumped into the driver's seat of the Kettengrad, the staff resting between his feet and against his shoulder. He motioned for Maggie to join him. What's taking her so long? He realized she was still stuck under the whale and rushed over. He grabbed her arm and pu pulling her free. She brushed sand off her clothes, her face, her arms. Thanks for not leaving me here, Maggie said. Hurry, we've got to go. Maggie climbed on behind Indy. He shoved the drive stick into gear. They peeled away the tank tread, ripping across the drying seabed. Maggie leaned forward and shouted, Where do you think we are? My guess is the Bay of Bengal, the bottom of it. He glanced back to see a trail of vehicles in pursuit, but he was more concerned about what was in front of them. The shimmering wall of water rose thousands of feet, merging with the sky. He recalled reading that the Bay of Bengal averaged more than two miles in depth. All of it was now above him. He clutched the staff in one hand, hoping that it was not only responsible for removing the water, but that it would continue to keep it away. He realized, though, that at any moment the phenomenon might collapse, burying them under tons and tons of water, instant death. Indy, they're catching up. I'm going as fast as I can, the water loomed, less than a hundred yards away. Striking it at this speed would be like crashing into a brick wall. He glanced back to see the Nazi vehicles spreading out to cut him off if he tried to turn back. Then, to his amazement, the water parted forming a wide corridor directly in front of them. Amazing, they seemed to be moving faster now, and the Nazis hesitated, as if not believing the water would stay away. That gave Indy and Maggie a chance to expand the distance between them and the pursuing vehicles. But Indy was forced to keep his eyes on the route ahead. Watch out for that rock, Maggie shouted. I see it. As soon as they routed the rock, another obstacle appeared. Hey, look at that. Indy slowed as they passed the remains of an ancient ship that stretched out more than 200 feet. He would love to have more time to investigate, he thought. Another time. They continued on, passing creatures, small and large, that Indy didn't recognize. A biologist could find enough material here for a lifetime of studies, he thought. They drove on, the Nazi vehicles no longer in sight. In front of them, the passage continued for at least a quarter of a mile, but they never caught up to the wall of water. It continued to open up, parting in front of them as if God's hands were unzipping the bay. Any sign of the Odin? Indy asked. I can't see it, Maggie answered. But I can't see much of anything above us. They might be out of immediate danger, but Indy doubted that they'd seen the last of Voller and company. He maneuvered around a formation of rocks so that they were near the wall of the water again. Indy pointed to a, a school of deep sea fish swimming alongside them. It was as if he and Maggie were traveling alongside a giant aquarium. 
the train grew steeper and steeper. They were climbing out of the depth and hopefully towards the shore. The vehicle's tank treads were definitely becoming handy as they continued their bumpy ascent. Hopefully, it would lead to land. Besides the muffled sound of the Ketterrand's engine, the corridor was a vacuum absent of sound. They moved through ruins of an ancient city exposed to air and light for the first time in centuries. Everywhere in their path, the remains of the past served as a silent remainder that all things ended and were replaced, Indy thought, as he spotted a city in the distance that appeared to hover high above them where water and sky met. They were escaping the sea, but his moment of elation popped like a child's soap bubble as a new sound reached him. Biplanes with Nazi insignias on their fuselages roared down the water canyon, strafing the seabed with lead. Indy dodged behind a large rock as three planes ripped past them, machine guns chattering. Now Indy understood why the pursuing catagrams had fallen back. He pulled out, accelerated, darting between rocks and debris. A couple of minutes later, the planes returned. This time, Indy hid near a huge rusted ship and bullets pinged off the wreck. They remained in the shadow of the ship as the planes made two more passes. After the second one, Indy raced away. Then suddenly, the city was within reach and they plowed ahead, bouncing their way into the port of Calcutta. They reached a pile of rocks, forming a barrier between the land and sea. They dismounted from the catagram and climbed to a walkway. A crowd had gathered to see the parting of the waters. People dropped to their knees and prostrated themselves. Indy, holding the staff, nodded and smiled before he realized that everyone was bowing to a white-haired man in a robe, that no one was paying him any attention. Who's he? Indy asked the teenage boy. A holy man. He predicted last week that the ocean would open on this day, and then the winding of the biplanes droned out the kid's voice as the Nazi craft roared up the corridor just behind the ground vehicles. In a few more seconds, the plane would strafe the crowd, killing and maiming innocent men, women, and children. Indy raised the staff, and at that moment, the water closed together, crushing the Nazi forces. Two of the planes were buried, and the lead one flipped over in the bay and sank into the depths. That's what he said would happen, the boy babbled excitedly. The water would close when the invaders charged through the opening. Smart guy, Indy said. Maggie hugged Indy. It's over. We made it. Not quite. The crowd, amazed by the water magic, now pointed to the sky as the Odin drifted toward the city. Did he say anything about that? Indy asked the kid. Yes, he did. Before Indy could ask for details, gunfire erupted from the Odin. The crowd screamed and scattered. Indy couldn't move. It wasn't fear or even anger. Something else had taken possession of him, and he held his ground. Lore peered through binoculars. From his position on the bridge, he briefly spotted Jones on the shore, but the image jumped around as the big guns fired, shaking the lens. He found Jones again, focused, and saw that he had the staff in hand. What was wrong with him? The arrogant son of a bitch just stood there as if he thought the staff was going to protect him. Maybe the ancient power object had parted the sea, just like in the Bible account, but how could it protect him against bullets? After all, there weren't any guns in biblical times. He laughed, goodbye, Jones. As soon as they descended low enough, he would climb down one of the lines and recover the staff himself. That was his mission. 
that and to kill Jones if he were still alive. He just hoped the staff wouldn't be damaged. He didn't want to end the, this expedition with a broken artifact. Now, what the hell was he doing? Jones pounded the staff against the ground. Suddenly, Voller's stomach nodded. He had the feeling that the staff wasn't finished exhibiting its powers. Maggie peered out from behind a 50-foot-wide banyan tree as bullets ripped across the shoreline. What was Andy doing? Why was he just standing there? She knew him well enough to know that he didn't easily run from trouble, but he wasn't stupid either. She shouted his name, but he didn't react. Any moment now, the bullets would cut him down. He pounded the staff three times against the ground, and Maggie simultaneously felt as if she'd been hit in the gut the wind knocked out of her. She gasped for breath, then gasped again as a massive pillar of fire shot from the heavens and ripped through the double hulls of the Odin. It exploded in a massive ball of flames. The moment the fiery beam struck the Odin, Indy snapped out of the trance-like state that had glued him to the edge of the water. He darted back to the shelter of the expansive banyan as burning pieces of Zeflin rained down. He wasn't sure what had happened. He'd invoked the power of the staff, but it was as if the staff itself had taken control, moved his arm, pounded the ground. Or maybe it was the spirit of its original owner. Now I think it's over, he said. You're very brave, she said, hugging him again. I didn't really have a choice. He spotted the kid again, motioned to him. Is that what was supposed to happen? The boy looked puzzled. I don't think so. The holy man said a man with a snake would protect us. Really, a snake? Sorry, kid, they're not my favorite creatures. Arm in arm, he and Maggie strolled away from the chaos along a walkway through a park. What are you going to do with the staff, she asked. I suppose it'll be protected in a museum. Maggie stopped frowning. Do you really think that's a wise idea? It sounds bloody stupid to me. I mean, Kingston was protecting it in a hidden city in the Himalayas, and look who almost got it. You're right. The Nazis are probably going to come after it again, but what should we do with it? Suddenly the staff started transforming in Indy's hand. He quickly dropped it, and when it fell to the ground, it was no longer a staff but a six-foot-long snake. The serpent raised its head, looking back at Indy and Maggie, then slithered off into the dense thicket of bushes and trees. Maggie started after it, but Indy caught her arm. It'll find its own way to wherever it belongs. I guess you're right this time. Hey, speaking of being right, let's go find that holy man. See what else he knows.
Like a moth attracted to fire, Indiana Jones followed the glowing torch through the jungle. 